Hello and welcome to Politics Roar Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is author, researcher, and polling maestro, Stanley Greenberg. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsor, Lomi, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, we have the perfect guest five days before the November 8 election, Dr. Stanley Greenberg, a polling mastermind. We're going to make this more of a conversation, James, so jump in anytime. Stan, let me just start. The New York Times yesterday had a headline, the off the off lead, left-hand side, that said that there was already second-guessing before the election among Democrats and that they stumbled on their message uh, this fall. You agree? Well, they more than stumbled. <laughs> I can't use the word. <laughs> but, that, but it also doesn't kind of capture the scale of what's going on, both the scale, you know, this election and the, and the forces at work, you know, or the, the work that uh, the Democrats need to do to get back in the game. Well, you laid out that what they should do about uh, almost two weeks ago, focus hard on the economy and the cost of living, contrast to empty Republican rhetoric, Go hard on corporate greed and monopolies, and then know that uh, you know abortion will be a complementary uh, issue. But they didn't really do that, did they? The first part. Hmm. It's almost like they were. Did. You know, uh, it's almost like there's like no da- you know national voice. Now, look, I listened closely to President Obama, who I uh, who I love, and and is, a, and is one of those popular people we have. In the past, he's kind of. Look, you know, pretty contented with the state of the country, in a country that's once big change. But and he also brought kind of brought out the other side, you know, motivated the other side. But you know, but this time I heard him talking about them going after Social Security and supporting big money, and it was a you know there was a much more engaged Obama. But it was different in each you know it was different in each town. It was different from the White House. It was different from the Congress. There was no intense, unified. Republicans are so focused on winning, and the uh, and the Democrats, I think, have keys for winning here, but just somehow don't you know? Just don't invest. Don't have that kind of battle to win. James Wayne. So Stanley, so Stanley, some weeks ago, uh, you did a poll and you concluded that the Democrats shouldn't talk about crime. Mm-hmm. How bad is mm-hmm. is the crime issue hurting us right now? Uh, look, it's the do- look, it's the dominant issue. It is like half their advertising online in September. Um, it is Fox News, you know, with more and more, you know, about crime. They they are very focused, you know, on crime. And look, when we ask a question that says, "What's your you know greatest worry about Democrats Democrats having control of the government?" It just goes off the chart. That they'll in the democratic cities, they'll be homeless, there'll be crime, there'll be attacks on police, um, and they, you know, they've gotten it focused on them, on you know, on crime. But but look, the problem is, and we and we look, we have always believed Democrats, our parties, our leaders have to fix the problems that people have about them, the doubts that they have about them, they have to reassure as a you know, as a starting point. But the Democrat position on crime is you know is so lost. 
that when we test the messages, when I test the, a bad message, by the way, when I test what Democrats are saying, you know, I put all the, you know, together from studying their campaigns and what they're saying, it's rejected by 10 points. And it then loses uh, support. Then I tested a message I know works, which focuses on the police. The Democrats are people who believe or for defunding the police. They think that's our position. Democrats think that's our position. <laughs> and so you have to reassure our police. Your message has to be totally about police, respecting the police, uh, and not, you know, not, you know, not defunding the police, having more police. And that message was received very well. But it also lost its support because the more people focus on the crime as the issue, the more we're hurt. You know, we've had you know, two years and longer of us getting this wrong and being, you know, just not focusing on the priorities of the communities that we represent. So, so you have been involved in democratic politics, frankly, longer than I have, but for, let's just put it at a long time. Your wife is a very prominent democratic member of Congress. Uh, people like you and I have long advocated for, you know, while Biden did, but we never made a windfall profit tax on all companies very central to what we were doing. We we didn't make crime central to what we are, even though our, our voters and everyone was experiencing it at the same time. Why can't why can't this party do that? Why, why when, when you go and you say it, they, they just humor you and say, well, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll try that or, or anything. Why we couldn't have the discipline, you know, to come down after Kevin McCarthy says he will shut the government down to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare. I can't imagine. Can you imagine anything in Poland more unpopular than that proposal? Right. right. Look, there's two things. One is. Can we win this election despite the crime problem, despite the border problem? And I think, we, look, I think we could have been in a better position. This is a period since Trump of very high turnout, very polarized, you know, uh, parties. We have 15 percent, you know, that have moved as Democrats to become Republicans under Trump, and the, and the same have left the Republican Party to become Democrats. So the, we have like a kind of a restructuring of the party. There really are Cheney conservatives. I mean, this is a high turnout period, highly polarized, and we compete to have energy and consolidation. Um, and, you know, we, Democrats could have made further ground if they had focused on the cost of living as the main problem the highest priority they have to address, particularly because Democrats had the things the same. They've done things. Republicans have done, you know, nothing and voted against everything they're for. And, and on your point, we are asking the rich to pay, big corporations to pay tax, uh, and the, it could not be more popular with the voters. So it was a way with the right message to kind of kind of build the consolidation, you know, of the of the voters that people heard. Like people are hurting. So they really heard us on the cost of living and, 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 and felt we really understood that, felt that, we could have been heard. Instead, we have these messages all over the place, and then you just have crime and borders then taking over. Stan, let me suggest at least, the Dobbs decision was a gift for Democrats and then the Kansas vote. But I think, however, a number of candidates began to think this was a one-trick pony. It was a guaranteed way to victory. And, and, and they, 
they they focus too much on that and not enough on the bread and butter issues you talk about. And look, without abortion, it might be a real red wave. But but by itself, abortion wasn't enough. No, it was not going to be enough. And the look, there are big issues facing the country. Abortion was like never going to be enough to drive it. But also, it just we're in a global period of pandemic, hyperinflation in every country. Every country has this spiking inflation. This is a very unique period where people are being really hurt. Now, they had two decades of declining wages, and so they're really being hurt. And we gave them the slightest help. You know, the household payments that happened during the, you know, the pandemic, the child tax credit, improved the, you know, health care, you know, uh, costs or help with drug costs. They really knew it and, and were ready to vote for it. Um, and this is a period of hyper, you know, inflation. So people, top of mind, we can move them, you know, on those, you know, on those issues. Every country in the world, the, part, the leaders are debating how to best deal with this cost of living crisis. Democrats were all over the board on it. It's hard for me to understand. I mean, the president, the White House tried for four months to convince people that the economy is doing well. You know, like 70% of the people rate the economy negatively. We have our main message for months and months was to try to convince you the economy is better than you. Right. Mm-hmm. To, to convince you what you feel isn't right, right? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, now to, to, to say to that voter, you're just dead wrong about what you think. We want to tell you that. And instead, I think in reading what you've done, if they had focused instead, all right, let's take inflation. Let's take prescription drug prices. Here's what we did. Let's take a cap on, 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 on insulin. Uh, let's, let's, let's go after the oil companies. Um, and, and contrast that. through. Very few candidates did that. Maybe a couple did, but not very many. Um, I think the candidates themselves understood this, you know, and used it in their own in their own advertising that they're helping people with the you know the cost. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of candidates used it. And, Do you? Uh, you know, but it's but but abortion was a much bigger piece. If you look at the share of ads that were on it, they you know they thought abortion was a you know a stronger you know position. Uh, and look, voters had to hear first that the cost of living was your main you know focus. Um, they're getting killed by it, but they don't, you know, they don't favor the Republicans. We're kind of evenly split on, the, on, you know, which party's better on the cost of the uh, cost of living. And far and away, it's the top problem in the uh, country. A majority choose, uh, chooses it as the main you know, problem. But, but the question is, why aren't Democrats able to talk about the discontent? Well, there's two parts of this: the, the economic discontent, but also crime. I mean, What's going on in the community? They aren't seeing their own voters. So, so you use the term cost of living mm-hmm. instead of inflation. Is, is that intentional? Uh, yeah. Uh, the, and I break it out. I mean, it was, I, have, you know, I, have, I have unemployment, I have the economy, I have, you know, and have cost of living you know, as separate items. Now, I started doing this in Britain. I mean, we had a local election um, you know, in uh, you know, in Britain, uh, where the cost of living uh, was the you know, was the main issue, um, and and I began to realize if you look in Europe, uh, where you have a, you, even higher inflation, it's just a battle on who's gonna who's gonna provide most. Help. Doesn't matter on ideology, 
the Tories conservatives in Britain, you know, were subsidizing, you know, energy bills and giving big grants to people uh, to cover energy bills. It didn't matter. That's the, that's the real battle out there. So I changed my question in, uh, in, in Britain and I changed my question here. And it's, if you look at the, at the, it's at the top of the list, because that's what's real for people. It's what, what does it cost for them to live? So, some time ago, you you did a poll on I want to call it uh, academic or left wing language, <laughs> and like defund the police or Latinx. Could you just let's go back and revisit that f- yeah. finding as we go into this election? All right. So my so my philosophy is, I ask people what they want to be called. Um, I'm, you know, I don't want you know the I knew I mean I knew Latinx. But I was even skeptical of Latino, uh, you know, and, and so among, you know, Hispanics, they use Hispanics. Latino, uh, Latino is, a, is a very small percentage who use it. Um, AAPI, how many, what percentage of them do you think are Pacific Islanders? You know, I asked them what they you know, call themselves and they said Asian, Ameri- Asian Americans is the big. And when I asked, uh, you know, blacks, it's actually split with African-American and black, African-American now a little bigger. And so I kind of mix it up in terms of what people, you know, call themselves. But it, it comes with respecting them and, and respecting what they, what's going on in their lives. And I, I think what happened over the last, you know, since the 2020 election, we had a very tumultuous year in 2020, uh, as well as, you know, George Floyd, you know, the protests. Uh, the uh, a president who tried to drive up racial conflict. We had a pandemic, um, or, you know, deep, you know, deep recession. Uh, you know, all the, you know, all these things came together um, in 2020, um, and the, many elites decided to focus, you know, only on addressing address, uh, addressing racial inequalities uh, and racial justice, and not addressing all the other issues. And what, you know, if you look at the data. That's not what these voters, our base voters, our working class, African-American, Hispanic uh, voters, it's not what those voters say are the most, are the biggest problem. Not surprisingly, they say it's the economy. Not surprisingly, they want crime addressed. But the elite view decided a couple years ago that that shouldn't be the priority. And the um, and so I've been building and building, and I've actually written our written a piece which I think will come out this week in the American Prospect, uh, in which I call out that elite, uh, improv- you know, imposing that elite view of the world. How, how did, because you're a, a, an elite academic, I, I, I went to Harvard and got a PhD from Yale, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't remember which mm-hmm. one, and you, you've taught. How does the party in the leadership of the party, how do they fall for this kind of stupidity? Did, did somebody mm-hmm. say, look, wait, come on, come on, people, this, we can't do this. And, mm-hmm. they, and they just sort of go along with it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, no, no. I mean, I don't know. You'll see in this article, and I, and I put together a, you know, a multi-generational, multi-racial team of pollsters and where each one asks questions you know, on the priorities in each community. And what you'll see is when you, t- when you take pieces uh, like path to citizenship, you know, or hate crimes, you know, against Asian Americans was always at the middle or bottom of the list of things that they were, uh, you know, focused on, you know, but this got imposed as the number one priority 
or the administration, if you listen to, to the Biden administration, you know, it believes, it says that's its, you know, priority. And so, look, there's been, you know, this is driven at a, you know, at a high level. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big part of the Democratic agenda. Um, but fortunately, the voters, our own voters, are, not where they are. Um, and, and so we're not even talking to the base is what you're saying. That's right. It not not only does it not only this offends swing voters in Ohio or whatever mythology we have, it actually offends black people in Georgia. Most of all, <laughs> most of all, yeah. most of all. Stan, I mean, only in our, in, our, in our question for blacks, crime was right up with cost of living, almost the same as a, as a top priority. Mm-hmm. It's go, Al, it's just like it's just so stunning that a polit- an educated political party can embrace stupidity on this level. No, it, it, it really is. is. And let me let me digress for a second, uh, Stan. Say the other thing that I think unfortunately doesn't matter is truth and character. I think we saw it this week uh, in the reaction of many Republicans to the brutal beating of Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband Paul by a right winger. And, and there were a lot of jokes by Republicans about a man who just undergone surgery or in keeping with earlier lies, spun a conspiracy. I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to praise Mitch McConnell. He was an exception. He really uh, reacted with horror and expressed support and empathy for the family. You don't expect Donald Trump to do that because he's a stranger to truth and incapable of any human emotion. His son, Donnie, is a pale carbon. But look across the board. The Arizona gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, Trump in a skirt – made a joke about a man being operated on for a skull fracture. Uh, House members like Claudia Tenney and Clay Higgins, James can tell us about Clay Higgins from Louisiana, spun a malicious lie, but it doesn't matter. Hmm. Look, I'm, look, I'm worried. You know, we have a, we have an election, you know, that's edging toward the Republicans, uh, you know, uh, winning, a, uh, winning the House. And I, uh, I think the Senate will be close uh, on who has control. Um, but I worry that they view that as a mandate, that they that they they did all this and were able to take over, you know, certainly the House, um, you know, and maybe more. And they will feel justified in that. Uh, and that, that pains me that our own voters look, I'm angry at us. The biggest we have two big shifts in this poll that we just did. One is moderate Democrats who moved significantly about 10 points to the Republicans, it's on crime and border. And we, and we also have Hispanics, you know, men, uh, where we break even, and that's a result of us not speaking on the economy. But both of those are outrageous because our, you know, our being captured by an elite agenda means we don't see our own working class-based voters, and therefore they're, they're allowing the Republicans to win. They're not winning... Because uh, in the Republican space, they're winning in our space. So let's project forward, hope if this election turns out not very bad. And people will come, will, will say, let's talk about, talk about the elite uh, wing of the party, the left wing of the party. And it, you say it's driving off moderate Democrats by more than just a T90 bid. It's driving off Hispanic males. All right. Should some kind of evaluation be done to say, are these people really 
it, it is assumed that they bring energy and fundraising and online presence and everything. Well, you think the Democrats need to look and say, are these people really worth it? Do they bring in more? Uh, do they bring more people in, or they, uh, or do they cause more people to leave? I mean, it's just a question mm -hmm. we need to ask. Well, for sure, they drive voters out, and they drive away our own voters. But I, but I think this is going to have to be fought out in the primary. I mean, I think you know, as we know, you know, with Bill Clinton, uh, you know, we, you know, we, you know, we fought against the Jackson, you know, the Jackson wing uh, of the party, uh, and we had to call out, you know, that wing of the party and order. They get hurt, and I, and I think it's, I think it's so bad to be honest on crime that it will be hard. Look, our ninety-five percent of Democrats vote for increased funding for you know for police, vote for ICE, vote for uh, vote for increasing the, the number of uh, first responders, more funding for local to have police. Our party is for law enforcement, stronger law enforcement, more police. I think Biden proposed 100,000, you know, more police. We're a more police party. And the only way they'll get heard on this, I believe, is tell them we're not the party of that small group um, that, you know, will vote against, you know, all, you know, all, you know, appropriations, you know, all bills that do any funding for police. Stan, how many voters do you think realize that Joe Biden has called for 100,000 more police? Mm -hmm. None. <laughs> Us. Uh, I saw this on this uh, yeah. on this call. I mean, boy, that says a lot. Yeah, and, and you'll see in this poll that it's uh, that I will be in this article this week that that's it's, it's the most popular thing that uh, we can say because it says it just pushes back with yeah you know, a giant pushback against the idea that we want to defund the police. So. Well, let's talk a little bit, but, you know, we're talking a lot about American politics, and we should, but the subject that's near and dear to both of our hearts is Israeli politics. What are your sort of observations post this last vote? Well, you know, there's still some chance of, uh, you know, one or two smaller parties get, uh, uh, reaching threshold, um, and that would dramatically affect, uh, you know, whether uh, Netanyahu uh, can form the government. I don't want to get fully you know, ahead of ourselves, but it would be, it would be a you know it's dependent on parties that are anti-Arab, uh, violent in their views of Arabs, uh, uh, Haredi uh, Orthodox Haredi parties as well. It would be a very right-wing government. Um, to be honest, that will struggle to deal with the U.S. government on a whole range of issues. But there's some chance that BB can will not be able to yeah. put yeah, together a coalition. Yeah, there's two, uh, like there's two or three parties that are right at the you know within a, like a half a point of being on threshold. That that changes it uh, dramatically. Merit is not the moment uh, on threshold. Well, uh, Stan. Also, if if BB does um, form a government, it's going to be a, a a nightmare for Biden because. BB is a Trump guy, and he's not going to do anything to help Joe Biden or the Democrats. Yeah, uh, absolutely. No, no, you're, uh, and you have the Congress as well, um, in which it will be if if you have a leading people who are associated with the Hamas, you know, movements, uh, you know, in Israel, terrorist uh, groups in Israel, 
it's a it's a different place. But they're also going after the Constitution, um, rule of law, uh, judiciary. There's a lot at stake. So, so there's been a lot of talk, appropriately so, on the politics of the UK. There's probably no American that has been more involved in UK politics than you. What's the current state of play there? Tell us where we're going. Look, the country's a mess. Uh, the uh, Brexit uh, you know, has turned out to, you know, kind of dramatically, you know, you know, lower, you know, lower their imports and investments. Uh, they are, um, they have slower growth, higher inflation, um, and they have that for the foreseeable future. And they do need a growth strategy, and Labor is, you know, also talking about that as well, and they're and they're, and they're seen as credible. The you know they can stay in power you know for two years and they don't dare because right now the conservatives would get wiped out you know if there were an election so they can they can push this for two years but they have like two years of austerity two years of trying to find the funds um, to, you know to fund people dealing with cost of living energy costs uh, and so they're in a crisis on top of crisis loss of confidence. Uh, and so, but it's the conservatives in deep trouble as a party, and, and they're fractured, divided party. Stan, we had a conversation with Ed Luce last week uh, of the Financial Times. Uh, ended up talking about, you know, what had the worst political uh, uh, process or system, Great Britain or the United States. It's, it was it was kind of a tough call. I would add Israel to that. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, for a country as admirable and with such able people, they have them. They have such a screwed up system. <laughs> we have great, we have great democracies that are well, and our problem is in all these countries we have large blocks of voters, maybe a majority, um, but usually you know in like in the forty five percent range, large blocks of voters that are anti at this point become nationalist and anti democratic, you know as we've seen in Brazil, as we've seen in France, uh, seen in Italy, um, where they're obviously you know even bigger than that. Uh, and so we have we have election systems, but we have polarization with large blocks that are anti-democratic and not necessarily accepting election outcomes, or certainly not accepting constitution, uh, which is what you know, which is what's happened in uh, in Israel. Yeah, and, and what was happening with uh, Johnson and Britain. Well, James, uh, you may have a final question, but I just want to say, Stan Greenberg, this is you have yeah, been a, that's a right. You've been a great a, guest. We've covered the the global landscape, and I whatever happens next Tuesday, I just hope Democrats right. will read your piece uh, and right. uh, and uh, start digging to heart. Then I uh, yeah I do. Uh, thank you so much. It was everything I hoped for and more, and I think our audience really enjoys this. But you know it. The aftermath of this is going to cause some hand wringing, but yep. parties, you know, political parties have to go through this. It's already begun. It's, 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 yeah. Yeah. We need it. Stan Greenberg, thank, thank you, you so much. Be safe. Here. You bet. Okay. Hey, now for our listener questions, and boy, do we have a lot of good ones this week. Let's start off with Fred in Bedford Hills, New York. 
who ask, am I right to blame the progressive takeover of the Nevada State Democratic Party from the Harry Reid centrist as a reason the Republicans might win that Senate seat? James, you have been in Nevada. I am in give Nevada. Us, give us the on-site uh, analysis. Sure. Right. Well, I, I had a long conversation with John Ralston, you know, who is the, I don't, you know, by far the most informed commentator. And a former so guest of ours. Built, right, former guest of our show. Uh, I think multiple times. But at any rate, so Harry Reid built, by any estimation, the most successful state party in the country. It were two female Democratic United States senators. It was the first majority female uh, state legislature was Nevada, most all of it because people that Harry Reid recruited. There's nobody that was better at promoting women or, or people of color or different aspects than Nevada was. And so our progressive DSA geniuses say, I'll tell you what we do, let's just take over the best state party in the United States. And, of course, what's happened is is that these campaigns just circumvent the state party. Now, it used to be a, a, a real valuable part and a real tool. And I think that they feel like they've gotten an alternative organization that is actually quite good. But it, I think we have to ask ourselves, do the DSA people, do they really want Democrats to win? And I think there's a, a, I think there's a case to be made that they don't. They would like to be on the outside telling each other how they're morally superior to these compromising, uh, power-grubbing Democrats who won't be as pure and smart and as righteous as we are. That, that's a perfect example. It was a great question from our friend from New York. Yeah, sure is. And the DSA, uh, James, the, Democrat, the Democratic Socialists of America, they're the ones right. that took they, it over. They, they never run against Republicans. They only run against Democrats. That's their whole deal. You know, the next question, I'm really going to combine two. Uh, one is Cody in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and Gordon and actually three, Gordon in Norwood, Michigan, uh, who asked, what the hell is going on with members of the Progressive Caucus undercutting Biden's Ukraine policy two weeks before the midterm, especially Jamie Raskin? And let's combine that with, with Wesley uh, in Raynham, Massachusetts, who said if, Stump, if Trump were still president, would he send troops and supplies to help the Russians? You know, Kevin McCarthy's threat to cut off aid to Ukraine is one more example of Republican support for totalitarian dictators. Both are absolutely right. And I want to start off with with Cody and Gordon. What that we talked about this a little bit last week, what that progressive caucus did is just is is beyond mal, malpractice. It's outrageous. And it wasn't just releasing it. They say accidentally uh, they blamed it on the staff two weeks before. And it was writing the stupid letter in the first place. Uh, whatever they say, I think we fought a number of wars that weren't weren't in our long-term interest, in Iraq and in Afghanistan after the initial foray. I think this is in our interest. This is the front line of the battle for freedom. The Russians invaded, uh, and I think uh, to undercut the president at this time was insane. And I do think, I mean, you, you got to understand, this Republican Party has a lot of pro-Russian members. Uh, and I think Kevin McCarthy's threat to cut off aid or reduce the kind of support Ukraine needs is one more dangerous move that would happen if he's Speaker of the House, and it would illustrate uh, Republican support, as you say, uh, Wesley, for totalitarian dictators. Well, this thing is so stupid, it got me to thinking. I don't know 
you, you know how they have these artificial intelligence things that they have these programs that where they can beat the best chess player in the world? Maybe the progressives have a, a, a random stupid idea generator that they put a lot of stuff in the data and say, let's see what the stupidest thing that we can do today. Well, okay, this might be the most successful foreign policy initiative since World War II. I mean, we've unified Western Europe, Sweden and, and, and Finland have come into NATO. The, the, Russia illegally and criminally invaded a sovereign nation, engaged in genocide. They had boxes of teeth where they were pulling the teeth out of these people. And my favorite is the Congresswoman Jacobs, who said, well, in politics, timing is everything. I wouldn't sign it today, but I signed it in June. Well, what you didn't know about Putin in June that you know today? That you didn't know he was a criminal? You didn't know he was an international thug? You didn't know he had conducted an illegal invasion? You didn't know he was torturing people? You didn't know he was dragging people off the streets? You didn't know all of this? And they didn't blame it on a staffer. Oh, my God. It, it, this thing is so monumentally dumb that I, 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 I can't, of course, they don't have an answer because there is no answer. The answer is, is artificial intelligence came up with this and they went along with it because they're not smart enough to think of something this stupid. I, I, they're really in case you don't know, I, I really am not a fan of this letter. <laughs> I think we know now, uh, and I agree yeah. with you. And the, the justification is some as well. We ultimately have to have a negotiated settlement right. in this war. We may. Who knows? But don't undercut the good guys uh, while you're doing that, which is exactly what this letter and Kevin McCarthy, they are, and on this issue, they're in bed with Kevin McCarthy, which is an uncomfortable place. <laughs> but, 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 okay, it's just such a stupid thing. What, what did... Aura did Putin put off that he would be in any way, shape, or form a mean war. And by the way, by you writing this letter, let, let me tell you exactly what you did. You demonstrate that to Putin that I don't need to call for a negotiated settlement because they're going to call for one before. And they, the West is going to weaken. Right. And we're going to be triumphant, and these people are, are playing right into Vladimir Putin's hand. Again, this is so monumentally stupid that it's hard to get to comprehend. And then the lame justification, of course, you, you, we had a negotiated settlement with Japan. You lost. We had a negotiated settlement with Germany. You lost. All right? You cannot deal with, with people like Tojo and, and, and Hitler and these kinds of people, and Putin, by, by being nice to them. That does not work. Yeah. You ought to go back to your elite college you went to and restudy history. Well, it does play right into Putin's hand because his, oh, his view is that we can, out, we can outweigh them. The West will wilt. Uh, and right. and he just got some encouragement from that progressive caucus letter he, he, from Kevin McCarthy. He, he certainly did. Eileen in South Windsor, Connecticut. James, I want you to take this one. There's a theory out there that if Democrats don't take the House, don't keep the House, it will force a reset with the Democratic Party. My thought is if the Republicans take the House and their chaos uh, caucus creates such noise in this country, it could benefit us in 2024. What do you think? I think these are all valid points. All right. And, and I, I hope, uh, I, I hope I'm not like anybody else, 
I really hope for the best come election day, but you have to be prepared that it may not turn out very well. We have to wait till this is over. And I think the party's gonna gotta have to take a long look at itself. I think more than anything, we're gonna need a, a you know, we're gonna wait and see what President Biden says. But right now, we just appear to the public to not be in charge, that there's too much disorder in the country, that too many people in a Democratic Party that defended disorder, which never, ever, ever works, and uh, you know, hold off on repercussions and everything else, and uh, let, let's see what happens. But what I'm seeing now is not that impressive, and of course, the main thing is the progressive people blocked any talk of the Democrats running on the crime issue. And so you know, I'm going to make this point very clear. The, the record on crime is very, very favorable to Democrats. I, I mean, the, the Biden-Clinton crime bill from 93 to 2019 saw un- People couldn't explain the drop in the crime rate. I mean, well, maybe it wasn't that about those some the sentencing stuff, which they actually put in for John Kasich. To, if you want to be really accurate with the history, was was unduly harsh. But that was the you know you were faced with the totality of the bill. In the last year of the Trump administration, crime spiked. Well, we should have jumped all over that. And their answer is so ridiculous. Well, it's in Democrat cities. First of all, it's. It, it, anything, it's higher in Republican-run centers. See the mur- murder rate in Bakersfield and Jacksonville, two Republican cities versus San Francisco, all right, which is a Democratic-run city. I, I mean, it, 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 eight of the 10 states with the largest increase in crime are run by Republican governors, have Republican gun laws in place and everything else. It, it, I think that we will pay for this stupidity we're paying for it now, and I fear that we're going to pay for it in the future. And it, it's an issue that we should. We have a much better record than they do, and but we're scared to say it. Go figure. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah, they seeded the issue in many places, and when you see the issue and people care about it, it comes back to haunt you, and it has, I'm afraid. Marie in Portland, Oregon, says, Why don't we as a country and corporations acknowledge that we need migrant labor? We need South American immigrants. First of all, Marie, you're absolutely right. Canada just has put out a request for, I think, a million and a quarter immigrants. They need them to fill important jobs there. Uh, We need them, too. Uh, you know, I want to see what Ron DeSantis does uh, about cleaning up that disaster in, in, in Florida without, uh, without uh, migrants. Uh, but first of all, I think Democrats need to say we need to secure the border. That's, that's just a sine qua non of an immigration policy. And when Kamala Harris said the border is secure, people don't believe that. And once you say that, I then think you can advocate strongly for a more liberal uh, um, immigration policy. We need those workers and hopefully push for some kind of immigration legislation. We came close 15 years ago with George um, W. Bush and Ted Kennedy and John McCain. You shouldn't give give up on that. Immigration is, is popular in America. What's unpopular is a porous border. Yeah. So... 
Look at the problems that we have. The labor shortage is real. People see that every day, all right? Well, how do you how do you address the labor shortage? You have more laborers. How do you get more laborers? You have more immigration. Uh, don't even get started on what on Southwest Florida and Ron DeSantis. As you know, I I, I still predict that when I drive from New Orleans to Destin, when I enter Florida, as Governor Ron DeSantis welcomes you to Florida, a sanctuary state. Uh, they are so desperate for immigrant labor in Southwest Florida. You can, and they do not. It is think it's starting to dawn on people just what a nightmare they're facing. So let's just stop. First of all, they're going to try to collect insurance. Well, lots of luck with that, and lots of luck at which you get because these insurance companies are notoriously uh, for, for fighting claims, and you're going to have all kind of arguments with them about what's wind damage, what's water damage, what's, what's anything else. The second thing, of course, Inflation is high. It's, it's high everywhere in the world, I'd be, I would point out. So when you go to rebuild, assume that you get any insurance money. Uh, so you go to rebuild. Well, you're going to have increased costs of these materials. You're not going to be able to find everybody because a lot of other people are going to be rebuilding at the same time. And the sticker shock that you're going to get when you see the costs of replacement on a barrier island where, where when I looked at the photos, they had houses built on a slab. On a slab. Now, this is really dumb. And it, a lot of people are not going to be able to return. It's, it's going to be prohibitive because they're going to have to be built uh, on stilts. They're going to have to be built high above sea level, and that just adds to the expense. So I, I really feel for the people of southwest Florida, I have a pretty good idea what's coming, and what's coming for them is, is not very pretty. Well, yeah, and Marie, I just want to add one other point. We have a demographic issue here. There are, 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 with a birth rate, there are fewer younger people coming in to support elderly people. And that's where immigrants help. They, first of all, are productive. Secondly, they commit crimes at a far lower rate. And so I think America is not only going to have a labor problem uh, in ensuing years, but we'll end up, uh, you know, having a, uh, a social security problem too if we don't bring in productive workers. Again, the border. Have you looked at the? Have you looked at the army recruiting numbers? Yeah, yeah. They're terrible. Yep. They're worried. You know who serves in the military? Just, just of course you know who serves in the military. Disproportionately high numbers. Uh, I mean, uh, yes. A lot of them are DACA yeah. kids. And, and you know, who's having a terrible. You know, one of the things that we, we need to talk about after the election is China. Because, you know, two, three years ago, China was a classic example of a rise in power. Now they might be the classic example of a decline in power. And it might be they're even more dangerous as a decline in power. They have enormous demographic challenges. I mean, enormous. Oh, oh. They don't even, they're stopping the reporting economic numbers. The one-child policy was an apt, it was it was the most disastrous move since um, Mao's uh, sent them back to the farms. Yes, it, it, but but we need to do sometimes, you know, and after the election, we're going to, of course, we're going to give it a couple of weeks, but we need to get some China experts on here because I think there's things that are happening there uh, that could really like affect our lives, yeah. to say the least. Oh, that's a that's a good idea. We will do that. Uh, we have Kyle in Portland, Oregon. We got a lot of Portland uh, 
listeners out there, James. Uh, Kyle says, I keep hearing Republicans will introduce articles of impeachment against Joe Biden, and I might add others, if they take back the House. They've already tried this year, but Nancy Pelosi won't let it go to committee. Why not let it go to committee? Heck, let's have a full House vote, knowing it won't pass. I'm thinking of President Clinton's approval numbers after impeachment. Well, uh, they don't impeach him, I don't think they impeach him for, but there's, you know, it, McCarthy is not going to be able to control that caucus. And they've already told McCarthy that, that he's not going to be able to control him. I don't think he could control him if he wanted to. And this is just going to be part of the fabric. And the, the White House counsel is going to be the busiest man in the world. There'll be so many subpoenas in there. I, th- I think that there was, I don't know how many hours of, sworn testimony on the Clinton Christmas card list. Well, you're going to see this like you like you can't believe it. And, uh, you know, the, I, but against this backdrop, I'm, I'm just increasingly convinced, and I don't really f- f- have much pushback on this. I think Garland is going to indict Trump, and I think it's going to be sooner and not later. And, I, you know, how, how, what's going to be the reaction to that? The, the, House Republicans, the, the you name it, the country. But I don't know how how he can't indict Trump. I mean, he stole something that doesn't belong to him. They politely asked him to give it back. He refused. And they sent people down there, refused again. Then they sent him a subpoena. He lied. He still has the stuff. They went in and they found it. What is, how can you not? Some, explain to me how you cannot indict this guy. I can't explain that, James. Uh, and I, I think you're certainly right. I think he likely will. And I'll tell you what the reaction of House Republicans will be. They'll try to impeach Garland because that's what they're about. People, everyone out there, I want you to do some research. Look at Jim Jordan, who will be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, you know, the the lead role in all of this. Look at him in the Ohio State wrestling scandal where a, a physician was sexually assaulting wrestlers, six of whom, and a referee and others, have testified that assistant coach Jim Jordan knew about that. If this is true, that was a crime, what that doctor did, and covering up that Crime is a crime. Take a look at the Ohio State wrestling scandal, athletic scandal, and Jim Jordan. That's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, but it's a good one. Yeah. It should be. It is. Um, all right, this is an easy one. Uh, Isaac in Hampton, Virginia. Where is the best place to watch election coverage on election night? Well, obviously, it's the PBS News Hour with Judy Woodruff. There's no question of that. Or if James Carville is going to be anywhere, you can quickly turn the channel uh, and catch him and then go back to the PBS News Hour with Judy Woodruff. She's my wife, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to be on MSNBC. And I, I, Steve Kornacki is really good. I mean, that guy is, you know, his kind of magic board and stuff. But but he's a He's pretty quick on on the uptake. The one thing on on election night I would look for early is Virginia too because they count very early yep. in in Virginia, and you know if you lose that, that's not good. Well, for and a lot and of and Virginia seven, I think it's seven with Spanberger too. Right, so Spanberger. You know, I, Maine too. I think they report pretty early. Yeah, and that's a pretty competitive. Democrats race. So, seem to be in pretty good shape in Maine too. I've heard, but uh, in any event, if Democrats lose, you know. Two or three of those, it's going to be a long, long night. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'll say one 
you know, there are some people who are good on election night, but every election night I have a enhanced nostalgia for Tim Russert. Nobody could do nobody could do elections uh, like like Timothy J. Russert. Uh, we have a question, a final question, I think, from Patrick in Exeter, New South Wales, Australia. And uh, we love our Down Under listeners uh, who ask, James, which voting bloc should we expect to surprise with their passion this election? The insane right or the moderate left? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what we hope, James. I'll just quickly add. What we hope is the surprise will be young voters. I'm afraid they won't be, uh, I, but that's I, what we I, hope. I, I do. I, I do. And I, I, I hope you're right. But when I call around about the early vote, what I'm hearing is not great. Well, in most places. It seems pretty good in Georgia. Uh, it doesn't seem as good in Ohio. So, uh, you know, and there's several more days to go. I think in Nevada is not great. Yeah, yeah. So that that doesn't. They just, I, you know, it, you, the hope was it would see things that really affected them, and they would come out. But I'm 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 skeptical. I, I, please prove me wrong. If you don't vote next Tuesday, young people, don't complain about threats to your future. Okay, it's that simple. Some of my favorite moments are with podcasts. One to start is Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad and journalist Ben Austin are friends. One's black, one's white. They grew up together on the south side of Chicago. As adults, Khalil and Ben are still best friends, but they know that interracial friendships aren't going to solve the problems of a deeply divided country. On their podcast, some of my best friends are Khalil and Ben have real talks about the absurdity of race in America. They invite guests like Attorney General Eric Holder, restorative justice leader Daniel Sarid, and TikTok historian Sherman Dilla Thomas to join critical conversations that are at once personal, political, and playful. Hey, James, that's a pretty interesting show. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, people say, you know, we don't talk about race or we should talk about race. Or uh, these, these people are, are trying to provoke a conversation and they're, they're worthy of support. It's, it, you know, it's something that we've got to discuss and put out and open. Hey, hey, listen to some of my best friends are wherever you get podcasts and stay tuned for a preview right now. My seventh grade yearbook listed me as Kalua Muhammad. <laughs> Man, I am still mad at that. I am not Kalua. I am Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Man, and I'm just plain old Ben Austin. <laughs> we are two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And we are back where season two of Some of My Best Friends Are. Well, y'all, y'all actually read the book. I appreciate that. That's right. We are here. We have done all the reading. All of it. And we are ready. I'm so happy I get to finally proclaim that I'm a nerd, right? I don't got to fake like I like football anymore for my friends and all that. That's right. This season, we're continuing the conversation about the absurdities and intricacies of race in America. Man, you came on the show just throwing haymakers. <laughs> You're just like, you got it. You started it. You brought up this question of violence. I gotta, <laughs> gotta take that casually. We know that interracial friendship isn't going to solve the problems of our deeply divided country. 
but we're ready to discuss what's possible and what needs fixing. Join us as we talk to guests like restorative justice leader Danielle Sarrett, former Attorney General Eric Holder. Historians, nerds, TikTok stars. Exactly. We're all trying to make sense of this moment we're in. And sometimes our guests become our friends. And maybe even our best friends. Mm, (laughs) They got to work hard for that. Yes. So stop by. New episodes drop weekly starting November 1st on iHeartMedia, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and now for our outrage of the week. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts takes issue when anyone refers to this as a Republican court. It's the old we only call balls and strikes. Well, this week, the chief struck out in putting a hold on lower court decisions that the IRS, as the law requires, has to turn over Donald Trump's tax returns. It's been requested by the appropriate congressional committees. Following the law, a Trump-appointed judge said this issue was clear as did the Court of Appeals, including a Republican. Roberts decided to overrule them, at least for now. You know, Trump first promised to release his tax returns to the public during the 2016 presidential campaign. Yet another lie, never intended to. The Trump plan is to run the clock now for the next two months until Republicans take over the House, and then they would cancel veto the legitimate request for his tax returns. If this works and Trump gets away with cheating again, let's be clear, Chief Justice Roberts would be an enabler. Well, there's no doubt about that. I I take my outrage in a little bit of a different direction because I want to talk about a piece that John Shate wrote uh, about an Eric Wimple column in the Washington Post, which goes through the saga of James Bennett being fired at the New York Times. And... The reason that this, of course, James Bennett was unjustified, as was Donald F. McNeil, but that that battle has been fought and lost. But the entire reign of progressive terror that was taking place in the country at that time, and to some extent is still taking place, has really, really hurt the image of the party. It it really has. And the, the... you know, sacking people for the most ridiculous or convoluted or, or secondary offenses in the back of some progressive mind spills out into the greater public and does real damage. And one of the damaging things that happened, and I'll probably put myself in the center here, but that's all right, uh, I urge the Democrats to take the crime issue seriously. And basically it was told that if we do that, will have a progressive uprising in the, in the party. Well, okay, it's opposed to having a progressive uprising in the party. In a lot of places, it looks like we're having a voter uprising against us. Hey, I hope, you know, I hope we do well. I hope people like Michael Moore are right. I hope that some of these current polls I'm seeing are, 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 are not what they, what they look like. But, you know, come Wednesday, a, a, a week from now, uh, I think this party is going to have to take a serious look at itself and how how does it go from here? And we cannot abandon an issue like crime. That's just ridiculous. Hey, 
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Lomi, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another. This will be a post-election show as we continue our War Room planning. 